0: The Lord that you're here in this place, and grateful, God, for the opportunity to open your word. I pray that uh, we came into this pra- into this place expecting you to move over our hearts through our time in worship and through now this time in your word. I pray, Lord, that uh, we wouldn't just take a Wednesday night just because it's a Wednesday night and there's nothing better to do, Lord, but we would actually come into this place hoping that you would uh, meet with us and encounter us, Lord, and, and that we, in in this encounter, would, would come to know you more and would come to love you more, Lord, and that we would leave this place just filled with your joy, full of your Spirit. God, pour out your Spirit as we study your Word now. And Lord, I just pray that... Um, as a church, as individuals, Lord, that the liberties that you give us, Lord, that we wouldn't abuse those things, but God, we would use them for your glory. So teach us your ways, even in the midst of of this chapter, Lord, and in the midst of this time, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So since it has been six weeks since we looked at the book of 1 Corinthians, perhaps Just a quick review, not of all the chapters or anything like that, but just the theme of what 1 Corinthians was. And it was a letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. Remember, Corinth was was a lot like Columbus, Ohio. It it was a a very culture-filled city. It was a, a port city that they would come and, um, and, and people would come and trade. And so with those trades came all different kinds of people and all different kinds of religions and all different kinds of acts and, and, and different things that people would do. And they gathered in the city and many of them stayed there. And, and so in that, then you have this melting pot of culture crossing each other and, 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 and coming together. And so what better place to establish the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, what better place to establish a church than in the midst of this, this city? And so Paul does do that and goes there. He leaves them after a short time and finds that, as is typical, he needs to write to them to, to bring them back onto track. They had gotten off a little bit. And one of their, their, their primary issue as you read the book of 1 Corinthians really was in many different ways they were taking the liberties that they had in Christ those liberties that we have when when we surrender our hearts to Christ and using them not the way that God intended and not the way that Paul intended but rather using them for their own benefit or rather to, to see how close they could dance to the line of sin because oh, I'm free in Christ to do these things. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. Yes, you are free in Christ. Yes, we have liberties in Christ, but that is not the intent. And the purpose of those liberties is to see how free you can be. I thought of it this way, and I don't know if I'm the first person to think of it this way. I kind of doubt that I am. But the freedoms that we have in Christ, we need to not so much think of them as we have the, the freedom to do things. We have that in Christ, and Paul states that in the book of 1 Corinthians. We have the liberty to do things, certain things, but we, we shouldn't really look at it that way. Rather rather than looking at it as liberties to, we should look at it as freedom from And what we have in Christ is the freedom from sin and the freedom from death and the freedom from religion. And so we've been liberated. We have liberty from those things, not we have liberty to do things, but we don't want to abuse those things. And that's the point of Paul's message. He he says, as we went through chapters 8, 9, and 10, and that was this big discourse about whether or not it was okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols. You'll recall all of that, and if you want to review that on your own time, go for it. But in that discourse, he said, I, I have the liberty to do whatever I want. I have the freedom to do whatever I want, but not everything is profitable. And and so why? What's the motivation in, in using those liberties? And his point is that we use those liberties in the context of love, that we, that we consider others more important than ourselves, and therefore we restrain some of the freedom, some of the liberties we have, in order to benefit other people. That theme is going to continue even now into chapter 11, where we read about, strangely enough, head coverings. And for you and I today in this church and in this place, is that a debate for today? No, we don't have that issue. We don't consider those things. There are still churches today that do consider that a a requirement to be in church. And we'll talk about whether what this talks about in 1 Corinthians, if that is appropriate or not. And then also as we approach the communion table, and that's kind of where we're going today. What I want us to see also, as Paul is correcting, it's not so much an apostolic thumping that he is giving here. I mean, he is using his apostolic authority. He is an apostle and he has the right to correct them, but it's coming from a heart of a father who cares for his children, this, this church that he's established, this church that he loves. He's, he's trying to draw them back to the straight and narrow and on the right, um, right path. And so he says in verse 1, and this is, this is an amazing verse. He says to the Corinthian church, Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. That is a bold statement for anybody to make, I believe. But it is appropriate for leaders to make. That is the intent and the point of leadership. Leadership and in, in stepping into a role in leadership. Your hope is that you would have people follow you. Well, when you're in leadership in Christianity, the point not, is not so much to have people follow you just so that they are following you, but to follow you as you follow Christ. And that's that's what Paul is saying. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul's saying, look to my life and look to the way I'm living my life as I am imitating what Christ has done on my behalf. Now, was Paul a sinner? Yes, Paul was a sinner. Am I a sinner? Yes, I am a sinner. Are those in leadership over you sinners? Yes, they are sinners. Are they going to make mistakes? Are we going to make mistakes? Am I going to make mistakes? The answer is yes. At some point, if you continue with me for the next 20 years until the Lord tarries, I guarantee I will disappoint you. I will let you down in one way or another. I guarantee it will happen because that's my nature. And 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 it's going to happen. And that's where grace comes in. And that's how you and I get to live in grace. But as I follow Christ, Paul is saying, as I press toward him, as I press into him, as I try to be like him, that's how I, he's telling the church, I want you to be as well. It's an appropriate statement for a leader to make. Paul puts his life out there as an example. And good leaders do that but I like that Paul also admits while he is a leader, he is also a follower. You get that? He says imitate me, but he's also saying I'm imitating somebody else and that somebody is the perfect one. His name is Jesus. He says in verse 2, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep their traditions just as I delivered them to you. Now I don't know if you remember or not, but there's been a few times that Paul's done this. That is... Sarcasm, okay. He's not bringing them accolades because he's in the midst of correcting them. He's been spending really since chapter seven correcting them, and so he says here, um, "Hey, you guys, you're following the traditions. You're, and it's not the traditions like." Christmas tree traditions, but he's saying the, the rules that I've given you, the, 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 the things that I established when I brought or put the church together when I was there in Corinth, you're doing a great job. Um, you remember me in all things and keep their traditions. That's not the case at all, because what they had done was really they were dismissing Paul, and they were putting into leadership these people that they wanted, those that looked more like the world. And so he wants to reestablish some order. And that's really what this next section is. Verse 3, what I want you to know, that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. He wants to remind them, and you and I by proxy, because we're studying this here and now, that there's an order to creation. There's a way that God established a system for you and I to live in, and that system is is best, or it's best if we live within that system. And that system is what he is, or what he says in in verse three. God is a God of order; he he likes order. We saw that just as we were reading the feeding of the five thousand in John chapter five. Now it doesn't say it actually in John, but in the other accounts, Jesus has the people sit in groups of fifty and And the disciples then you know distribute the meals to them. God is a god of order, He likes order. you look at at nature it's it's orderly it's uh, now certainly sin brings about chaos at times, but generally, there is an order to it. God is a god of order, and he established this order for our benefit that we would understand that you and I or we have different roles. But here's what I want us to hear, because so often this gets abused, this man and woman relationship, and the roles that we play gets misrepresented. Just because we have different roles doesn't mean we have different values. Okay? Does that make sense? Just because there's different roles between men and women does not mean that we have different values. God values us all the same. He has just established that we would have different roles. A woman was created to be a man's helpmeet, to meet the needs of that man. God said, as he looked at Adam, it's not good that man would be alone. So while a woman's role is under the authority of her husband, and I want to clarify that and make sure we all understand that, it's not that all women are subject to all men. It's that a wife is subject to her husband. Um, and so let me say that again. While her role is under the authority of her husband, she is of no less value, or she is no less valuable to that of the man or the husband. We have different, differing roles. And we see that, we get our example in that as we look at the triune God, as we look at Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and God the Father. God, God, God. It's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All equal, yet distinct, differing roles. And we see that within the Godhead, that there is an authority, and that there is one subject to authority, yet they are both God. Christ submits himself to the authority of God the Father. We see that, in it's called the economic trinity, the way that the... the the roles are established. God the Father would have the, the, the higher position or the, the, the role of authority, let's say. God the Son, Jesus, is submitted to God the Father's authority. And then through the book of John, we see that the Spirit then is submitted both to the Son and the Father. Because the, both the Father and the Son are able to send the Spirit. Okay, And so that's the economic trinity of, of the Godhead that we worship. There is role. There is differing roles within them. Um, And and so Christ is subject to the Father. You with me? Does that all make sense? Christ is equal to the Father. Both are God. Yet Christ's role is in submission to the Father, the head. Okay. And so we have that as well within a relationship between a man and a woman. He says in verse 4, Every man praying or prophesying having his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. For that is one and, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. Okay what we need now is perhaps just a little bit of insight into the city of Corinth and some of the culture that was happening in that city in that day and in that culture and at that time all women all women wore head coverings okay when they went out in public as a sign of their Submission to a man in, in marriage or, or their father, if they were unyet married, they would wear a head covering to show that they were, were under an authority. And that was done by all women, save one group of women. And that group of women were the temple prostitutes that were in the temple of Aphrodite. Those women would walk the streets without a head covering, saying that I'm available. I can be bought. And then if they were very licentious, they would actually go and shave their heads as well. Okay? And so that group of people were the only, that group of women were the only women that would go out in public without a head covering. So then the Christian church comes in and the teaching comes that, hey, we are free to do what we deem or what we want in Christ. We have the liberty, Paul would say, to eat meat sacrificed to idols. But like he says, it's not all as profitable. And so these women would then say, well, I don't have to wear a head covering anymore. And as they went out in public then, what they were doing, at least to those in the public, were identifying them as temple prostitutes, or at least maybe misunderstanding what their message was. They weren't saying, I have liberty in Christ. They were saying, I'm available. That's what the world saw it as. And Paul is saying, hey, you're sending a mixed signal. You're sending a mixed message. Maybe that isn't the best thing to do. And so he was saying, rather than using your liberty, ladies, to see how close to the line we can dance, let's see how far from that line we can live. Does that make sense? And so he says, put the head coverings back on, is what he's saying. Uh, let's let's not go down this particular road. Verse 7, for a man indeed ought not to cover his head since he is the image and the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. He's reminding them again of the established order that woman was created from Adam's rib. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. That's where we get the word help meet in verse 9. Verse 10, for this reason the woman ought to have... And then in brackets, a symbol of authority on our head. And then it's interesting, it says, because of the angels. Now, there's been a whole lot of debate about what that means. And and like David Guzik said as I was studying him, he's like, David said, hey, I was okay with what Paul had to say up until this point. I kind of got it, and I understand what he was saying, that we didn't want to mix cultures and what have you. But all of a sudden now he says, because of the angels? A woman should wear covering on her head. What what is that talking about? And like I said, there's been a whole lot of debate about that. Am I going to figure it out for you tonight? No. (laughs) I'm not real sure what it would mean. This is the one explanation that I tend to lean toward. I believe that it means that as we gather, the heavenly host takes notice as you and I come together to worship God in this place, that it isn't just us gathering, that there are principalities, there are authorities, there are angels watching us and observing our gathering together. And I believe that when we abuse our liberties or violate the order that God has established, that bothers the angels because they are wanting to fully give unto God all the glory that's due Him, and part of that would be the order that God has established, that we would walk in that order that God has established. That is part of our worship to our God. And the one thing that I thought that might support that idea is when we read the book of Revelation, and John is taken up, and he is brought into the heavens, he sees an angel... And he falls down as though dead. He worships, he falls down as though to worship that angel. And what does the angel say? Dude, get up. I'm a a created being too. You're violating the order that God has established by you worshiping me. I don't want that to happen. And he immediately tells John to get up. Worship God. And so, as we gather, I believe what might disturb the heart of an angelic being would be when we use our liberties to violate the order that God has established. I think that would might perhaps bother them, and so that's what I think it might mean here in verse 10. And then he says in verse 11, Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. And this is a great reminder for you and I, as He does establish order and that we have different roles, although the same value, we're intertwined. God saves us individually, but He saves us into a body. And and then as we get married and as we have families and even as we act with one another in the body of Christ, God has intertwined us. Man is not independent of woman nor independent of man in the Lord. We are, are conjoined or joined together as we serve Christ. For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman, but all things are from God. Yes, Eve was created from man, but ever since then, man has been coming from woman, being born of woman. Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? Now, that statement is, is very interesting as well. And as you can imagine, as Calvary Chapel got started in the late 60s and early 70s, when the hippie movement was in full swing, as, as Chuck Smith opened the doors to those hippies, you can imagine the wrath that he received from a lot of fundamental churches that would say, how can you do that? How can you let those long-haired boys or men into your church? They're sinning. And so, very often it said, as I was studying, that Chuck would get this question, be it on the radio or via mail or however, that how could this, how could you allow this to happen? And he says, look at the sentence again. I, it's very interesting. It says, does not even nature itself teach? He doesn't say God is teaching at this point. He's saying nature is the example as we look to them. Doesn't it teach itself that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? Doesn't say a sin, just simply says a dishonor. And so what they had done is taken this verse to an extreme that I don't think Paul intended to take it. He's just simply saying, hey, nature itself teaches that for man to have long hair, it is a dishonor to him. Now, what does that mean? Well, long is a relative term, is it not? I mean, I can look at Russ's hair and I say, dude, you got long hair right, at a quarter inch. In, in comparison to what I have, he has long hair. So long is a relative term, is it not? So what is long? Who decides what long is? It, it, we really can't say. I had long hair for a long time, and God said that's enough. <laughs> and he made it fall out. <laughs> if God wants you to have short hair, he can arrange that. But if a woman has long hair, in verse 15, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. I think what Paul is saying in all of this is to say, you know what? In almost every culture for all time, women, as a rule, had longer hair than men. Now, where there were those rules broken at times? Certainly they were. Certainly at times men had longer hair. Than, and everybody says, well, what about Samson? Yes, what about Samson? Or what about, you know, Paul at times had long hair, right? I mean, he had, because he would take the vow of a Nazarite. He would let his hair grow out. And so what are the, you know, generally a woman's hair was longer than that of a man, and it was a benefit to her. It, it's looked at as more beautiful that a, a, a woman would have long hair than a man. Okay. Where are we? 15? So 16, he sums it up this way. If anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Okay? So what is he saying with that statement? This is what I would like to see in your church there in Corinth. I believe that ladies, you should have a head covering. You should keep your hair long, but we don't have a custom that is church wide, is what he's saying that that this is not uh, something that is a, a blanket statement for all of the churches, but this is what would be appropriate for your culture. And the way that, so that what you and I can look at is, in, in this discourse on head coverings is, is it appropriate now as we look at our day and our age and our culture that you and I would wear head coverings? Is it common for women to ha- wear head coverings today out in public? No, you don't see it very often, one one or two groups of women generally do, the Amish, the Mennonites, and that's their, when you see that, you, you know who they are. But f- to say that all women of all time in all places, that's not what Paul is trying to establish here in this discourse. He's saying, so that you are not identified ladies with women who live licentiously, let's do the best we can to stay away from looking like them. Let's look different than from them. I encourage you to wear a head covering. Does that make sense? The way we teach it today, the way I teach it in my house today is, ladies, my girls, we don't dress the way women in the world dress. We have a standard of modesty that we would impress upon you so that we don't look like we are out giving a booty call. That we, and so we have a, a different standard that we express to our girls to say, let's try to remain modest. And that's how we look different than the world. I think that's what Paul is encouraging in these verses. Okay, with me? Now he's going to turn the corner, turn the page, and say, uh, head toward this idea of communion. Verse 18, For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Now he's revisiting the idea that he brought up way back in chapter 1, that there were divisions among them, that they were not living in unity. Remember the whole conversation, I am of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Jesus. And and so they would say, well, I'm under this teacher, and so I don't have to listen to the authority of this teacher. And Paul sets all those things aside. We are all under Christ is what he determines. And so now he brings that idea back up that there's divisions, and in part he believes it, and there are factions, uh, divisions among us, among you, rather, the church at Corinth. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. And so he is very adamant in this section. He is correcting them strongly in this section, and sometimes you need to do that with your kids this church that he's established. I don't praise you. You guys are are messing this up. And so what is he talking about? As he's introducing the idea of communion. Well, again some some culture information. When they as the church in those days would gather For communion, the intent and the purpose of remembering what Christ had done, they very often would have what they called agape feasts, or what you and I would call a potluck dinner. How the church got the name potluck, I'm not really sure. Pot providence, whatever you want to call it. It's what we do after church on Sundays. It's the same basic idea. They would gather to eat, they would fellowship together, and at the end of that time of fellowship, they would have a time of communion. Now what was happening and the issue that Paul was having is that they were using their liberties for their own gain. And the wealthy in that day, they were generally the ones that brought food, and so as they brought food, they would say, "Well, I'm sorry, you're less fortunate than I. You don't have the money that I have. You go to the back of the line. And because I brought the food, I get to have the first choice of what food is here. And so they would then... Take their plate and they'd keep on everything that they wanted and bring up this big pile. And then they would go and eat as much as they wanted to, gluttoning themselves, or they would take the best of the wines and they would drink as much as they want to. And then by the time the end of the line came, there was very rarely food left or drink left. And some were getting, you know, gluttonous or some were getting drunk, it says. They were abusing this. And, and so Paul's saying, You're not acting in love. He's telling them. You guys, you're considering yourself as more important than others, and the definition of love is completely the opposite of that, to consider others more important than yourselves. They were not operating in that love. And then he says in verse 23, "...for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread." Now, this is an interesting statement, I think, because Paul was not at the table, was he? He was not one of the twelve that were in the upper room there at the Passover before Jesus was crucified. Yet he says, I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. How did he receive this from the Lord? Well, it could have happened one of two ways. We know that Paul spent some time in the desert after the road to Damascus experience. He spent about three years in that time i believe that the the spirit of god came and visited him often and 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 taught him the ways of god and demonstrated to him the the how the old testament points to that jesus is the messiah it could very well be in those experience in the desert time that he had that jesus came and and helped him understand what the sacraments were don't know that for sure possibility of one thing happened another option would be as he was welcomed into the fold of the churches and established and then sent out that they would experience communion together, him and the disciples or the apostles. Now, those that were there with Jesus. And so he didn't receive it directly from Jesus, but through the apostles, he understands what is happening at the communion table. And now he is using his authority, which God has given him, given him to say, this is the way it's supposed to go. So 23 again, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And so now he's going to lay out for us the communion table. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so he's reminding them and us the intent and the purpose of communion. That we see as he as we see the body of the bread broken, that we are reminded that his body was broken for our behalf. I'm glad that we just had communion on Sunday. This should all be fresh in our memories as we gather around the communion table. I think it was very appropriate that we covered John chapter six, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life, and it is my body that is broken. And we see the bread literally broken, that you and I might have life. Now how was Christ's body broken? Do we understand that? We understand that in order to fulfill prophecy, that none of his bones were broken, right? He he couldn't have been a perfect sacrifice had he had broken bones. That would make a sacrifice unfit. And so as we see the Roman guard coming to break the legs of those that were crucified that day. Jesus had already given up his life, and therefore his legs were left unbroken. He was pierced through the side, but it would have gone underneath his ribs and into his heart. And so his ribs remained intact. So then how was his body broken? Well, it was in the scourging. It was in the stripes As Isaiah would say, that he took for you and I, that his body was broken. And those 39 lashes that went across his back with glass and bone into the the straps that were dragged across his back, that's how his body was broken. And in that breaking of his body, are we healed, is what Isaiah says. And so as we gather at the communion table, we remember that Jesus lifted up the bread It blows my mind to think that he lifted the bread and gave thanks for it. Knowing what it represented, knowing that it represented his body broken, and he said, thank you, Lord. Thank you that I can endure this, that these people might have life, that these people might be healed. That is awesome. That is just wonderful that He would do that for us. And then He says, you know, after supper, He lifted up the cup and He said, "This is the the blood of the covenant, shed for the remission of sin, that you and I might have forgiveness." I love that the cup that He raised, and we talked about this as we went through um, Easter week this year. I loved the way that that unfolded this week, this year, as we gathered each night during the the week before. uh, the resurrection Sunday, very powerful time. And as we looked at the Seder meal and how that was established, the, the Passover meal, that they would lift up four different glasses of wine, each one representing a different thing. The cup that Jesus lifted is the cup that came after the meal. It was the third cup. And in the Passover, the cup that he lifted was the cup of redemption. That was the meaning of the cup that he lifted in the Passover meal. It was the cup of redemption, reminding the Israelites that they had been redeemed. They had been pulled out of the yoke of slavery. And he lifts that cup and he says, hey, this is a new covenant in my blood that you are redeemed. We are redeemed shed by the blood shed on the cross. It is a new covenant, but it is the same idea that we have been redeemed, the, the cup of redemption. And then he says in verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He Comes. And so each time we gather around the communion table, we do it at the first Sunday of every month. There are churches that do it every Sunday. There are churches that do it once in a quarter. There are churches that do it with an agape feast and then communion at the end. There are churches that do it. Is there a set rule on how often we should have communion? No. There isn't. It just simply says, when you do have communion, you do this in remembrance of what Christ has done. And so he says, as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I love that. Each time you and I take the bread and drink the cup, we are both remembering what Christ has done, we proclaim his death, but we are also anticipating that he is coming back. We proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. That as you and I gather, as we ingest the bread, as we drink the cup, that we are both remembering backwards and we are looking forward to His return. That's what we're entitled to do, or that's what we're encouraged to do through this chapter in that verse. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. What is Paul saying? That we shouldn't be coming to the table stuffed because we were gluttonous at the meal beforehand, drunk with wine because we imbibed ourselves and we lived as close as we could to the line of sin. That we shouldn't come to the table in an unworthy manner. That we, you and I, should examine ourselves. Now, I want to be clear about this. What Paul is not saying is that you have to figure out a way to make yourself worthy so that you can come to the table. Because there isn't one. It's not saying, hey, you get your life right, and then you get to come to the table. And I think if you read it in the King James, it lends itself to that understanding. And that's, that's not what Paul is trying to say. Paul is saying as we approach the table of communion, that we approach it with reverence, in a holy manner, to say I I am fully understanding what exactly this is. This is, as I ingest this, this is the body broken. This is that Jesus took the stripes that I might be healed. And as I drink of the cup, this is that Christ had to shed His blood for me to have remission of sin. I can't come to the table in a worthy manner because I'm not in my in, in and of myself. But as I surrender my heart to Christ... He makes me worthy and invites me to come to the table. And so that, as we examine our heart, that's the position that our lives, our minds should take, is to say, I'm not worthy, and that's why I need this time at the table, because he makes me worthy. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself. Not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we judge ourselves, we would not be judged. Paul's saying, "Hey, examine your heart. Come in a in a reverent way to the table of God. We 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 shouldn't be coming as as gluttonous or or drunk to the table. Not discerning the Lord's body. Notice he he doesn't say." You are subject to or, or he, he eats and drinks judge the judgment to himself in verse 29. It doesn't say the judgment, but rather just judgment, the judgment that would come with God's correction. And he said, and, and the way we understand that would be in the light of verse 31, if we would judge ourselves, would we not be judged? And he's saying, if we would come in a reverent way, then we don't have to worry about being judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened or chastened rather by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. So there's the, cor- the idea of correction from God. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. More examples of how the Corinthian church had used the liberties that are given to us in Christ to benefit themselves rather than benefit others. We need to consider others more important than ourselves from the way we dress to the way we eat. We place others' needs in front of our own. Now, that doesn't mean when I close the service on Sunday and walk back there that there are a hundred people going, no, you go first. No, you go first, and nobody's going first. <laughs> now, that would be a nice thing to do, but there can be order there as well. But perhaps you don't need four broths. I don't know. Maybe you do. Maybe this is the only meal somebody gets, decent meal that they get every week. So maybe we need to consider other people in front of ourselves in the way we dress in the way we talk in the way we work in the way we act in the way we play in everything that we do that we might bring him glory amen let's Let's this closing prayer god i'm so grateful that you invite us to come to the table and to examine our hearts lord we want to honor and glorify you with our lives and Lord, we have fallen short. Every one of us has fallen short at one time or another in the way that we have brought you glory. But your grace is sufficient. And I'm grateful for that, Lord, that the body, your body was broken, that your blood was shed, that we might have the forgiveness of sin. We need you, Lord, so much. And so uh, I'm just grateful, God. I pray that these words to the Corinthian church we might place on our own hearts and our own lives, that we would consider our others more important than ourselves, that we would live our lives to bring you glory and to to love other people, God, placing their needs in front of our liberties. Open our eyes to that, God. In Jesus' name, amen.